Hi guys, it's Andy McDonald, physiotherapist and strength and conditioning coach, and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. On today's episode, it's going to be a little bit of a different style to the normal one-to-one format, where I interview individual guests. Instead, it's a real privilege to have three great clinicians on today's show, from different backgrounds and environments, to discuss Achilles tendinopathy management. The guests or panel today consist of Dr. Karen Silbernackle from the University of Delaware, Mark Young from the AFL's Geelong Cats, and regular of the podcast, Dr. Matt Tuttle from the NBA team, the Denver Nuggets. And of course, myself, absorbing the knowledge and facilitating the conversation. So without further ado, here is the informed performance Achilles tendon discussion. Just in case listeners are first discovering any of you for the first time now, to kick us off, could you all just provide them with a little bit of context as to what you currently do, your backgrounds, and maybe if you can just briefly outline your personal interest in tendons or maybe your exposure to um, to tendons if we start with Karen and then if we go uh, Matt and Mark yeah hi I'm Karen Gravar Silbernagel I'm a physical therapist and a PhD and also a certified athletic trainer I've been a clinician since 1990 I can't even count how long that is now that's I guess 30 years Um, and I've done research on tendons for at least the last 20 years um, currently, I was born and raised in Sweden, um, went to school in the U.S., back to Sweden, but I'm now back in the United States at University of Delaware in the Department of Physical Therapy. So I train PhD students uh, in biomechanics and movement science, and then I train physical therapy students, the Doctor of Physical Therapy program. And my interest really started with tendon kind of as soon as I started, because um, when I went to school... We didn't really talk about tendon. Tendons attached muscle to bone, and that was that. And then I started my clinical um, and started working, and then everybody had tendonitis. And I was really stunned by everybody had pain and inflammation in this part that we never really talked about. And I think that was really sparked my interest. Um, I felt like in the beginning I was smart because I knew that itis was inflammatory and inflammation. So I was smart. I could treat the inflammation. But then all those things got turned on its head. So eventually when I got a chance to start my PhD and do clinical research, and that's my PhD is in orthopedics, but I've done several clinical trials, both on Achilles tendinopathy and Achilles tendon rupture. So that's my interest. And I run the tendon um, lab at University of Delaware. So my experience is mainly lower extremity tendon, um, interested in tendon in general, and main focus have been on the Achilles tendon because it's the easiest one to do research on because it's kind of big and easy to touch and do do stuff with. Brilliant. Thank you. And if we go, Matt. Yeah, so, uh, so I'm a physical therapist and lead sports scientist for the Denver Nuggets. So my interest in tendons is in managing uh, a lot of the issues we deal with. So Achilles tendonopathy and patellar tendonopathy are fairly common in the NBA with just the ex- excessive amount of jumps and the load placed on the tendons through those explosive maneuvers. So always trying to learn more and figure out ways to manage those across an 82 game season is really interesting. And especially in exacerbations, because so frequently uh, you know, I'm going to get on a tangent off pretty early, but like load management as it's framed on ESPN is very different than actually managing tendon load throughout a season for players that really need to tolerate these stresses on a game-to-game basis. So that's my interest, my background. Uh, Did my DPT at Upstate Medical in Syracuse, New York, uh, sports residency and manual therapy fellowship in North Carolina in professional soccer and uh, tactical athletes, and then 
had an opportunity to jump on with the Denver Nuggets. So that's how I got here. Brilliant. And then lastly, uh, over to you, Mark. Yeah, I'm an Australian sports physio. I've uh, been working in professional sport for 18 years now. Um, as an athlete, as a young person, um, I had a volleyball scholarship and had a lot of tendon pain for four or five years. So that was when I first got interested in it myself, um, plagued with uh, jumper's knee, patellar tendinopathy, and uh, fascinated by the work the physios did with me, which led to a career in physiotherapy. Um, I worked initially at the AIS and then the EIS in England, where I spent eight years predominantly with British athletics and then England cricket. And for the last eight years, I've been at the Geelong Football Club, which is an AFL club here in Australia, which is the biggest sport in town, but not known by people outside of the country. Um, so I've published several papers early in my career under the tutelage of Jill Cook and Craig Purdom, uh, but predominantly a, a clinician these days trying to interpret the good work of others and apply it in a meaningful way. Brilliant. Um, so the theme for today's conversation is going to be to discuss managing Achilles tendinopathy uh, in athletes specifically. And hopefully within that, we'll be able to tease out some useful insights on uh, how you guys in particular approach this injury through maybe the differences or the, the similarities that you have in, in the context that you work. Um, you know, we have some ideas on how Achilles tendinopathy uh, might occur and, and Matt touched upon uh, overuse and overload a, a second ago. Specific to your current environments or maybe your experiences, what are the, the key causative factors that you may personally expect to see in a history or, or during your evaluation? I'm, I'm mainly interested because I think there'll, there'd potentially be some uh, diagnostic process differences uh, in how you approach it. So if we can start with uh, Karen again. So if I understand your question directly too, it's kind of what, what, are, what are we looking for, not just in history, but also in um, the actual evaluation? Yeah, so just trying to understand that kind of, uh, the kind of complete diagnostic picture for what you do. So one, one of the things that I've moved from, and that's what I want to start from uh, as from as a clinician with the questionnaires possibly and my clinical exam, and really I think talking to people, again, it's regardless of what it is, as long as you talk to people, you learn a lot looking at changes in activity levels, changes when it's starting. But we have also moved into research, uh, really try to look at it holistically. So we do things from specific questionnaires, taking the clinical history, but also try to look at um, uh, pain on palpation, but also pain thresholds. And then we do uh, a lot of functional testing, a test battery that we use since my PhD, but then we've added on structural measurements, like with ultrasound imaging, we've added on mechanical properties. So from a research perspective, um, I'm not allowed to do more evaluations because my PhD students think I do too much anyway. But from that perspective, we try to do a broad range of evaluations. Um, that is a little bit different than what I would do if I just saw somebody clinically too. And I think that the other part from, from our perspective is that we... Um, we also see a huge range of patients, right? In it's very different than sports. I see people usually anywhere from 15 year old to 80 year olds with Achilles tendinopathy. So we spend a lot of times also looking at things like um, that. I become more and more interested in, like we talk about metabolic and medication, BMI, age, all those factors. That is kind of a little bit different to evaluate. But in general, I would say that one of the main things when I work with athletes is anything that will be the changes in load. And that doesn't necessarily mean changes in how much they're running. It could be the load is interpreted differently because of other factors that they've been through. Cool. If 
to go over to you, Matt. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, not shocking. She hits on a lot of huge topics there, but uh, the perspective in pro sports is a little different, right? Because we can do an extremely thorough evaluation. Oftentimes, uh, you might be able to argue too thorough, right? Where there's just so many data points, you're not sure necessarily what is the most important of those data points. So sifting through a lot of the data can be really challenging. Uh, we're super privileged though, right? We have ultrasound imaging to get, like uh, Karen mentioned, some of the imaging on the tendons. We are tracking load both subjectively and objectively every day. Uh, so we have those metrics to be able to lean on when we're interested in what's going on with the tendon. And then I think another one that uh, she mentioned coming from a pain science background is that uh, palpation and actually getting a metric for it, right? So having a measurement of pain pressure threshold, I think can be pretty valuable. And we've seen some value in that in professional athletes. Because right, there's going to be a cut point between like, this is pressure, pressure, discomfort, oh, I can't play, right? That's not, that's a continuum. It's not as simple as just like, no tendinopathy, tendinopathy is so bad I can't play. So we deal with a lot of those factors on pro sports and then just sifting through what we find most important. Brilliant. And then lastly, I have to you, Mark. Yeah, absolutely, Matt. I, mean, I think it's important for the listeners to understand I, I've worked with professional male athletes predominantly. The, the, the strengths of that, are we're all over them. We see them every day. The challenges are we, we see them every day. Uh, so it's really hard to know when someone's gone from a little bit of an annoying Achilles awareness into something that's going to become a problem. So um, being really clean in how you set up your conversation and your assessment uh, in a squad I, I look after, we look after 46 players um, that train uh, three times a week with a, a game once a week. So that's our scenario. Less games than the NBA, um, but just being across changes in symptoms. Uh, changing load, absolutely, uh, is the number one factor for us. Um, but that can be uh, applied in different ways. For example, someone signs a sponsorship with a new boot company and they've changed their boots, which changes their load. So uh, the GPS says they're running the same distances and they're doing the same amount of work, but the forces are applied differently. So that would be one example that we need to be across. Um, you really are hunting for subtle changes early on because, as I think we'd all agree, once this thing starts, it's, it's hard to, to clean it up. And how do you guys kind of get on top of uh, tendons early on? What are your kind of very acute strategies? Um, if we go back to you, Karen, and follow the same order. Yeah, I think that um, the benefit, I want to go back to a little bit of Mark and Matt saying too, I think it's really exciting what you guys are talking about with a, with a lot of the data points. And I think one of the benefits that I have that even though a lot of the elite athletes I work with, I'm not seeing them every day, right? That's on consultant basis or with others. And the one thing that I sometimes, I just realized thinking about too, is that we I use training diaries a lot. So you can see the various, in training diaries, you can see a week. So you can see a pattern instead of having the, the noise of talking every day. So I think that's, I just realized that that sometimes helps me better than hearing what somebody says every day. So I think that's really interesting. And I want to hear you guys comments on that but you also asked me about the acute yeah how do you what are your i know it's very um case by case specific but what are some ways that you personally try and get on top of sort of early symptoms or early reports of it yeah so my my when i work with elite sport i work with individual athletes uh a lot with track and field but also work with soccer and i think that 
it's very different when you have an individual athlete and you can work with a coach versus a team sport. So it's easy sometimes with an individual athlete, they know that they can load control and you have all these variables in a track and field athlete because you're only working with them versus you have a team sport trying to find these things too. I've always been proposing more and more now when we're talking about as exactly as what Mark and Matt said too, we need to kind of stop this early on because otherwise we might enter at the point of no return. So the subtle signs, and I think a lot of the athletes, and it's hard, much harder when I work with soccer, but with individual athletes, it's re- sometimes really easy to work on when there is a change in performance. Sometimes they run a little less, so they're getting a little slower. And if you can interpret that for them, that that might be a change in the tendon performance. And instead of training more when you see that, you might think about other ways to train so you're not on the path of getting an injury which is so much harder when you're working with a team sport to kind of see those subtle changes because there's so many other variations. But I think the early, and there are some um, questionnaires on trying to follow from Ben Clarsons and his research. And I can't remember what it, OSTRC or something, try to evaluate changes in the symptoms, but um, I will leave that to you other to um, talk about too. But I, I find it is much easier in an individual sports to kind of talk about it early on and with patients than it is in a team sport. And how do you find it, Matt? Yeah, I'd, I'd echo the, the comments of kind of working with individual athletes, having some clinical background with, with individual athletes. Those are, those cases seem to be easier to manage than being in the heat of a professional sports season. And your coaches are expecting your starting five to be out there every night, regardless of symptoms. Cause that's just the way the game is played. And, for us, managing the acute ones, like you said, there's a lot of variance as far as do we have schedule timing coming up where we may be able to truly offload an individual? Uh, well, that doesn't mean strictly doing nothing, but is that unloaded conditioning on a bike, unloaded conditioning in a pool? Is there is there ways to work around tendon symptoms on off days and diminish uh, load on the tendon so they're able to be active for the next game. Cause really that's our most important piece is being available for the game is number one. Uh, so some of these patterns aren't necessarily always perfectly in line with the research uh, cause there has to be a practical component. So stuff as simple as just throwing a game ready on a guy sometimes on an off day uh, to give them, you know, some inflammatory mechanism, we think uh, as far as that being perfect, we know it's not, but, does that give them a mental stimulus too to say, Hey, I'm going to be ready to go tomorrow because I've gotten a little bit of rest. I've unloaded the tendon. It'll feel 1% better when they get out of bed tomorrow. Uh, so I think it depends on where we are in the schedule and also the chronicity of it too. Is this something that just flared up in the last one or two games that had never happened before? Or is this somebody who's been managing uh, through a patellar tendinopathy for the entire season? Uh, and I feel like we need to split those and Mark, you've you've worked in track and field, and obviously uh, you're, you're in a team at the moment. Has what's just been said kind of does that match up with what you've experienced over the years? Yeah, spot on. I think when you're dealing with a 200 meter runner and they start to develop Achilles pain, you can sit down with the coach and their team and get everything spot on. When you're in a squad environment, and uh, as Matt said, um, availability is key for us. Um, and plenty of players compete with symptoms. I think a real challenge for the sports team physiotherapist is 
convincing the player uh, and the coaching staff that early symptom signs are important and need to be controlled. Um, I'm a believer in the stages of tendinopathy, and I think when you've got a reactive tendon, you've got a 7- to 10-day window to shut that up. Um, and that's uh, through various strategies. But what's challenging is the player can say, look, it's not too bad. It just hurts a bit in the second half of the game and it's a bit sore when I walk around in the morning. And it, it can be hard to set. You can be seen as overreacting. Um, now, what I'm getting better at is recalling our war stories and saying, remember two years ago when we didn't get on top of that one and it ended up taking nine months and ended up in surgery? So I, I, I collect all our mistakes and war stories and, and paint the picture in team meetings because I do think you have a, a window, an opportunity um, that passes within a few weeks and things become a lot more difficult. And, you know, you all deliver in different environments and from the sounds of your intros, you've, you've probably got very different um, tools available to you as well. And that'll be uh, increasingly true of the listeners as well of what they've got available um, to kind of create a little bit of transferable dialogue that clinically can be applied to, to anyone listening, really. Um, is there any kind of overarching philosophies or frameworks that guide your, um, your management of tendons? And Mark, you just touched upon um, staging of tendons, which, which feeds into that a little bit. But do you all have kind of philosophies that you, you tend to follow um, beyond treating the patient as an individual? If we start, if you can. So um, I have a lot of philosophies, but um, we'll see what we can go with that. But no, I think that it's, it, you know, all, all those, my biggest philosophy is that if we can stop and there's a Swedish proverb that is kind of like stop uh, Ula at the gate, you know, you, if the, the early we can stop it, the better. And I think that my, um, Really, what we're working on is to, from a research perspective now, and where I'm trying to go is that instead of uh, Mark and Matt having to discuss with the athletes at that point, trying to teach people earlier and earlier on. So once the athletes are there, they should already be well aware of what the, the things are so that athletes can take more of a chance or take more of a um, you know responsibility for that. But there are certain clinical things that we use that I use that we're looking at now in our research with my PhD student, Pat Corrigan, who's actually finished and he's a postdoc now, but we really looked at the return to sports phase to kind of figure out, are you ready and not ready? And the things that actually relates to how well you can run and how you run changes over 30 minutes, if you're starting to alter your running pattern, because we know there is a great chance of developing pain on the other side. So some of the clinical things that turns out really good, one is pain pressure threshold. Not everybody has that, but pain, just squeezing the tendon, but some people are tender forever. So that's one of the problem. The other one that really stands out is hopping pain, standing on one leg and doing 15 to 20 jumps and rating that pain to kind of determine how well you are. And that has really been an indicative of being able, the lower pain you have, if you're like a one or below, your running doesn't really change very much. But as soon as you go higher, we see that you're over the 30 minutes or during the run, you're offloading that side. And that's a simple one to use. And I use that a lot with um, a lot of the running athletes with Achilles tendon up and they come in and I feel great now I should start running. And I say, okay, jump 20 times and tell me how it feels. And he weeds out the one they're like, oh yeah, I can't run now or I can't figure it out. So we do pain and we do the hopping. Um, we look at all the, I think those are to me are like really big clinical things. And then we really use the, um, you know, use the pain monitoring model with activities and kind of use that to kind of stage. And we really try to work on recovery days. And how about you, Matt? 
Yeah, I, <clears throat> I think there was some really nice take-home points there uh, from the functional standpoint. Uh, you know, so often it's let's measure this by just doing, you know, as many single leg heel raises as we possibly can for Achilles tendinopathy, where because of the structure of the tendon and how the tendon works in sporting activities, maybe that's not the best point. Uh, so for listeners, like we need to stress the tendon before. So I like those ideas of we're really functional with our stuff in the same sense because we deal with so much jumping. Uh, so assessments like hopping, single leg hopping, single leg hopping under perturbation too, uh, we've seen some variance with, which is really interesting. Uh, I'm trying to remember the original question too. It sounds like the original question was, what are we doing from an assessment standpoint or was it uh, from a treatment standpoint? Kind of like what's your overarching philosophy that you follow in how you approach managing a Achilles tendinopathy? Mm -hmm. So for us, I guess the overarching theme after some of those functional assessments is trying to maintain some semblance of load in the tendon. So not completely unloading an individual just because there is pain. Uh, there's some decent research out there on the structure of the tendon doesn't actually change based on symptoms under ultrasound. So we need athletes to continue to do something because if they diminish and fall off the wagon completely and are like, I'm not doing anything because I have pain, it leaves us in a really interesting place for a buildup back to sport if they are missing games. So trying to maintain some semblance of load under their tolerance uh, and also the, just the education pieces on what pain is and why this is occurring can become real home runs with these athletes. Matt, you said something there about hopping under perturbation. Talk, talk me through that. Yes. Yeah, so our guys, um, it's one of my, uh, questions are always around counter movement jump and it's more just cause I like to stir the pot a little bit. You know, a guy jumping on a single leg in the training room doesn't give us a lot. A guy jumping on a single leg, going for a rebound, being bumped by a player development coach 15 times is much more accurate to what's going to happen in game. And so you mentioned like the footwear. Footwear for us is huge, right? When you're dealing with guys who are six, eight to seven feet tall and putting that kind of stress on their foot. So what does landing differently do to the stressors on the tendon? What does landing differently do to the other structures around the tendon? Like if we stay around the uh, the Achilles, all the other structures around the ankle, and are they going to be able to tolerate that stress? This is more in a longer-term case. Uh, but that for us is really big. Interesting. Um, you know, again, kind of relating to your experience or your your current environments, which, and I think this will kick up some, some fairly different uh, answers, but what are the kind of challenges that you face specifically to your, um, your athlete population now or the people that you work with? Um, Karen, you obviously mentioned track and field. Is there any kind of sp specific challenges that you find with them as an athlete uh, group and activity in terms of how you uh, kind of rehab them and get them better? Yes. I think that, I think the main ones that I work with nowadays with the research and things too is runners, right? It's, it's all kinds of runners and all kinds of runners in all various ages. And I would say some of the challenges and some of the challenges that I'm enjoying that we really try to figure out with research and things too are less than the elite level, but everybody that you want to keep active is to try to understand how, so we're pretty good at doing pain monitoring model we do loading, we have recovery days, we have this picture. And as Matt was talking about too, one of my studies, we looked at if they were allowed to continue running and jumping during the rehab with the pain monitoring model, did that help? And they works well for Achilles tendinopathy. So one of the things that we're really working on is trying to 
understand how all these other pieces fit in to give them the best guidance, right? To kind of more individualize. It's not just all eccentric training or, you know, concentric, eccentric. That's the medication for the tendon to try to get the tendon better. But how do we fit all the other pieces into it? And we're really looking now to, we have, we can see that structure, the degree of thickening relates to recovery over time. But there probably is some people that have, not a lot of thickening with symptoms, some has probably much thickening that is a point of no return. So then that's not a goal. And I have one student that looking right now at grouping of patients, and we see one of the main groups that we have is this um, active population that don't have a high BMI. Um, There's probably is low control that we have, but then we see other people that might be structurally impaired more, that might have higher BMI, there might be some metabolic aspects, and then we have people with fear, and how do we address that? So I think those are the challenges that I really work with with the runners that we have, to use the model with exercise and return to sport. But then also, I have a lot of women now, we're talking about the hormonal changes, and really try to broaden the perspective that this is just not one, um, here's a piece of paper, do these exercises, you're fine. Um, but trying to find the individual for all these runners while still not get stuck on too much. There's still one tendon that we need to get back. Yeah. And Matt, obviously you've got some very unique uh, anthropometrics to work with as has been touched upon, but you know, you know, obviously there's going to be a few challenges for you, but what are the, what are the main ones that you face? Uh, I've, I've mentioned it already and I sound like a broken record probably, but schedule density is definitely our biggest challenge. Uh, we average three to four games a week throughout the course of the season. Uh, included in that are some really poor recovery opportunities. So tens of thousands of miles of travel throughout the year, multiple time zone changes. Well, we do everything we can to provide uh, high level nutrition. You know, there are times that it's just not, it's imperfect, right? You're going straight from an arena to a plane to fly to a different city and play another game within 24 hours. So Kind of the the holistic outlook on a tendon creates inherent challenges of just like these are the biggest issues inside of the NBA. On top of the fact that these athletes are jumping, uh, they have long durations of rest throughout the game. Uh, like if a game's two and a half hours long and it's forty eight minutes of play, and an athlete's only playing thirty minutes, that that restart for athletes can be really challenging if they play a six or twelve minute block and then it goes into halftime and they may be sitting for 45 minutes or an hour with some degree of a warm up, but certainly again, it's suboptimal. Uh, I wanted to reach back and touch on one of Karen's points. I, I love the idea of subgrouping where she was like, we have a subgroup for fear patients. We have a subgroup for women's at like hitting those subgroups, I think has been how we've tried to address some of those. So what is the, what are the descriptors for the tendon, uh, the chronicity of it, like hitting some of those subgroups have been really nice to manage those schedule challenges and then picking our interventions from there. And Mark, obviously in the, in the States and the UK and a few other countries, people will be a little bit less familiar with the AFL, but it's going to be, it's going to have some similarities to sports people can relate to like rugby and, um, and the NFL, of course, but what are the kind of challenges for you down in, in, in the AFL? Yeah, I think the, the, the time of year that the symptoms come is, is huge. If it's in the preseason, the way you can treat the tendon is completely different to if it's in season. Um, our games roll out once a week for 23, four weeks in finals. 
Um, and, and there's a main training in the middle of the week. So it also depends on the status of the player. If they're a star, they maybe don't need to train. But if they're a peripheral player, they need to train to prove their performance. And the challenge you have there, a recent study on AFL players showed around 30% have tendon symptoms. It affects performance but not miss games. So players don't miss games with tendon pain. They just tend to decrease performance over time. And then you have this interesting discussion about he doesn't seem to be as quick off the mark as he used to be. He doesn't seem to be running out games as well. And the player will say to you, look, that tendon pain is getting worse than I realised, but I was trying to hold my spot on the team. So it, it, it's it's such a complicated and entire team conversation about how to manage tendon symptoms in season. Um and, and that's something that you have to bring everybody in on um, because there are, there's a reward for not mentioning early tendon pain for a player. They don't want to miss training. They don't want to miss availability. Um, but, again, back to my earlier point, uh, selling the, the, the ultimate effects of ignoring that uh, is important. Can I ask a question then? Of course. Uh, but, Mark and Matt, I think this, this is so, so interesting. And I, I trying to figure out how do we – there's two questions to you guys. There's like one thing that I always wonder, how do I harden the tissues and the tendon ahead of time to don't, so they're not, so they can handle more when they get in. And the other part is how do we as a profession and really making start people realize that having tendinopathy, it's equally or worse than having an ACL injury. What, what do we do? I say Mark go first this time. <laughs> Um, look, it's a great question. And, and whatever your, your phrase is, hardening the tissue or preparing the tissue, we spend a lot of time with our strength and conditioning guys um, staging the preseason to make sure that initially we're, we're hitting what we call muscle capacity before introducing any kind of intensive jumping loads or sprinting loads. Um, we find change of surface is a really vulnerable thing for us. So when we're changing surfaces, I see Matt nodding furiously, um, but when we go from uh, a type of a synthetic grass to different kinds of grass to a hill run um, gradients. So we we work hard on ensuring the program gradually introduces different kind of loads to the tendon, as opposed to maybe thinking about the strength of the tendon. Um, but we put a lot of thought into that. Um, we obviously react early when we sense symptoms. Um, but but a lot of it, a lot of our our tendon rates are the lowest they've been in five years, and I believe that's predominantly because we have some very aggressive early warning signs that we act hard on, um, and we really work with the program to ensure a gradual increase of different types of load. I, I was nodding furiously at the uh, at the changes in surface. Having been in professional soccer before this, and you have athletes that are used to playing on grass, and then they switch to a synthetic surface, and there's there's a change. A coach wants to throw hill sprints in for a day, and it's a change. Like so, for the longest time, I think I was, you know, I maybe diminished that early in my career. I was like, yeah, whatever. And then you start reading more, you start learning more, and you're like, oh. Yeah, no, I totally blew that. That was on me. Um, so that was an interesting point. I think you hit it with what is your off-season and preseason windows look like? Um, unfortunately for us, right, and some of it's just the structure of the NBA, the guys aren't required to be around in the off-season, but our strength and conditioning staff does an excellent job of building workouts for guys and getting them to them in the off-season and then staging our off-season. So just like that classic, periodization of what are we doing and when and what's our timeline up to a huge increase in court work uh, in game one. Uh, I, I mean, preseason games are important, but being available and healthy on game one trumps everything. So 
then how can we use our preseason window, which is shortened in the NBA uh, and that training camp window to try and undulate training and strengthening to be ready for the game. It's really just echoing everything that Mark said. I like being in this spot more. Can we, can we switch it? Can Mark always talk before me? <laughs> we can do that for a couple. <laughs> just to, just to follow that. Um, <laughs> but Karen, the single biggest mistake I've made over the years is when the season ends and we don't have the control of the players for about eight to 10 weeks, either Matt, um, it is, um, I just say one thing, just please keep running because nothing's worse than the grumbling tendon that gets to the end of the season and they stop and they go, I feel great. And then they come and they start running and training again and you've got a big problem on your hands. And then you've also got to say to the coach, look, we've got seven players with Achilles pain who can't train this week, to which he says, they've just had eight, nine weeks off. What are you talking about? Push through it. So you've got a real challenge there. You're going to be that physio that says a quarter of your team can't train because you're going to generate a bigger problem. Um, the players are sheepish because they haven't been running and they don't really want to admit to it. So so what you do in the off-season, and I don't have to tell you guys, uh, stopping running for a period of time uh, sets up all kinds of risk factors. You guys are absolutely destroying my questions because you're uh, you're answering a lot of the future questions that I'm about to ask in part already. So uh, I think this is a good time to segue with that in mind to, uh, to, to Matt. Actually, I'm going to ask you first for this one. Um, Without going down the semantic rabbit hole of using the word preventative, and I've had Matt on before and we've, um, we were going to avoid it and then we just attacked it head on in the end. But we'll avoid it today in terms of what, prevents, what injury prevention is. But what are the kind of factors that you consider in terms of reducing the risk of Achilles occurrence? And you, you've just mentioned some there, but is there anything else that you, you're thinking about in terms of uh, minimizing the risk of them occurring? Yeah, I... It's challenging um, because there is such an individualized approach to addressing some of these issues. You asked about Achilles tendinopathy, but I think my answer is easier to conceptualize around like a patellar tendinopathy. And some of that is global strengthening and strengthening above and below the tendon, right? So we get so stuck on loading the tendon. What part of the tendon is uh, symptomatic? How do we change stressors on it? Like That's all well and good. Uh, but there are times that if my athlete's doing an exercise in the gym and two coaches come in to talk about him, like the range, the really specific range I wanted him to work in before is not happening anymore because he is completely distracted. Uh, but around like patellar tendinopathy, what can we do for gastroc soleus complex? What can we do around the foot and ankle, around the hip and core that opens Pandora's box? Is there a potential to change some mechanics at some level uh, to take stress off of the tendon. So it's not the one tissue in these athletes being hammered on time and time again. Uh, and that's, again, that's without diving into the very tendon specific uh, issues of like eccentric, heavy, slow, you know, Karen started touching on a few of them already. Mark, what do you kind of implement um, to kind of minimize the risk? Um, we talk a lot to our players when they come in for preseason. So we say things like, have you done the off-season program? Honesty is the best policy right now. Um, we we want to know, have they been wearing their boots? Because a lot of them run in runners and then they switch to training boots. Once, uh, So think of soccer, NFL cleats, um, and they start cutting and pivoting. And that's a change. You know, the, uh, a football boot is not particularly supportive. It's great for changing direction quickly, but uh, it's not what you design to support uh, a foot 
for optimal biomechanics. So uh, we want to know about things like have they been wearing their boots? Have they been completing their running? Um, we're wary of a person that says, oh, look, I, I was I was in a hotel with a, a crappy treadmill and I've been running for the last two weeks and just starting to get this little something, but I don't think it's much. Those kind of things catch our attention. But but a, a thorough, thorough history at the start of pre-season. And you could say, look, these are professional athletes. We're with them all the time. But I'm always staggered when I discover information that I think is important that I didn't know about an athlete under my care. So we, we can't talk to them enough. Um, I sometimes jealous of Karen and, and the clinicians who can sit there with a pen and paper for 30 minutes and get a thorough history because I don't know what you've found, Matt, but between hopping on buses and planes and catching them, um, familiarity breeds contempt. And sometimes it, it's really hard to just uh, get a clean history when you see them all the time. But there, there, there are a couple of things that uh, we'd look to do. I, I think Mark hits on some really good ones, right? So like that return uh, in prevention. I fall into this, like, get back to basics all the time. It's like Mark's describing a really, really good subjective exam. And then, you know, spend some time discussing really good objective measures. So what does a jump look like? What does force output look like? Like getting back to your basics that you learned in PT school, just applying them to professional athletes is, has its own challenges. Mark, you hit it. Like, We'll take athletes when we really need a good eval, like out of the training room into a specific office to get their attention and taking phones away and minimizing distraction. Cause you hit on it. I touched on it briefly with like coaches coming into weight rooms. Like those guys have so many demands on them all the time and so many pulls in different directions. So it could, it's definitely a challenge in professional sports to get a good subjective exam. And a little bit of a change in topic cam, but kind of this one's really geared towards you. Um, you've done a lot of work using elastography in a lot of your research. How close can we get using elastography to um, looking at how the tendons sort of mechanical, mechanical properties are responding and being able to sort of prompt the rehab progression or, or kind of staging it and, and adapting our plans around it in sort of real time? Yeah, I think that's a, it's a good question. I mean, we're all looking for the holy grail and that's not going to happen. Um, I think what you hear from all of us is like back to basics a lot of time too. But I think that what we're really trying to look at, we know that the tendon is a mechanical, um, it's, it's a device, like it gives us energy, it supports us, we need to load it. If it's damaged and you don't load it, it's just going to get worse. And I think the um, elastography that we do, the benefit of the way we're doing it is because you don't have to load the tendon, like other ways to measure, you have to do muscle contraction and get changes. So you can most of the time collect it fairly quickly and maybe see changes. Um, right now, I would say measuring the mechanical properties we see from a research perspective, very interesting data that we have from viscosity and shear and we see how it relates to outcomes and things. But the way we're measuring, it's still a more of an um, in a research perspective, and uh, we really try to use it as a biomarker to understand how we should train them better and how low changes. But um, and that data, how from our research, then we can give indication to clinician that this is how you're going to train, not maybe expecting them to use the elastography in their clinic, but we can use it maybe to get a quicker change so we understand how our um, exercises and things work. And we use it a lot, like thinking about um, for tendon ruptures, when we can't load them early on, we can't measure any other ways to see those things. Um, we've also had discussions like for when you, so for the general population, maybe it's not um, 
the most important outcome, but it'll teach us from the research perspective. I think then from the elite perspective, the more measures we can maybe get of the various domains. So we could we use elastography to understand that a person is from the change to whatever you call it, to more an acuter or reactive to the other direction, could it be a way for us to see that somebody's a way to shift? So maybe we only have to, um, and it's a podcast and I'm using my hands. Um, sorry about that. But if we can get a chance to kind of detect the slight change early on using elastography, then we just have to nudge them back a little bit so we don't have to any drastic changes in loading or all the things that we talk about. I mean, that's the ultimate goal for us to understand. And I think if there's going to be working at some point, it will be elite athletes, but it's not something that you're going to use for, um, you know, for the, for most of the general population in the clinic, but from a research perspective it might teach us a lot of things. I'm interested to hear what Mark and Matt have to say on this about, you know, whether you use any kind of indicators to prompt the, the, the rehab plan. We go to you, Mark. Yeah, Karen, I'm interested. In, I'm, I'm interested in your work. About four or five years ago, um, we, we really tried to understand the structure of the tendon and see if it could influence our thinking. We um, brought UTC into the club on a monthly basis. And um, a, a four-year summary of that is we just didn't quite find it had the accuracy or the predictive value to make the decision. Because the, the killer question is, and I'm interested to know how far away you think you are, is machine says yes, machine says no. So when, when we can scan something and say the structure is this and therefore we're going to pull back on training load, and that's, that's a huge decision for a team physiotherapist or medical staff to make in the absence of symptoms. Um, and then obviously once symptoms come, they, they're the front runner for a lot of decision making. So my, my take on measuring morphology and mechanical properties is it's an important subset, but I'm interested to know how you've see it could become something that that Matt and I use in our respective teams to help guide decisions what's your, what's your thoughts on that it's again it's a million dollar question right but I think that I think that we'll I think we will be able to I think depending on what the uh, equipment and things that you have and how we interpret it um, with elastography and the way we use it we can actually get two outputs called both viscosity with rate dependent and something that's a shear modulus. And I think with both of those separated out, the commercial scanners put them together. You're getting two various things that kind of relates to how a tendon work, right? Viscosity, we know the tendon is rate dependent uh, and the shear is probably a little more related to um, the, the strength of the tendon. The, the problem that we're seeing is that um, they are not as easily changed the way we're evaluating them. So we, it's a little hard to say how sensitive are them from changes. And if they're too sensitive, maybe they're just responding to that you ate a hamburger yesterday, right? And if they're not sensitive enough, we don't know if there was a change and you've been overloading for 10 weeks. I think that's one thing that we need to look at. Um, the other thing that I'm really interested in what we're looking at and um, is with our data. So you kind of calculate an average and I'm working with the biomedical engineer to looking at it. But I think also the other way that we're starting to look at it is that um, a little bit like the UTC is a variability that you can see within a tendon. So the biggest thing is going to be when you do research is that um, what is normal and what are averages versus what is a specific person's tendon. So you're going to have to at some point, um, if it's going to be useful, you guys are going to have to know in the clinic that this is player access normal and he's changing, right? 
And if, if at player X's changes and you measure at the same time, you might have an indication of that it was loading or not. But I think before we end up there, we have, we have a lot of work to do and see if we can end up in that area. I think the interest is if you think about um, um, from a mechanical engineering's perspective, right? If you're building a house or you're building something and um, the structure is starting to fail, there are ways you can actually measure that structural integrity way before it fails. And that's kind of what I'm hoping to do with a tendon, right? Can I, can I measure a change before it's actually something that happened to indicate it? But I, I wouldn't go buy an elastography machine and put it in my clinic and start measuring, you know, unless you have something specific. So I hope I answered it in the way that I think that we have a lot of potential, but this right now is research and we're trying to figure it out. Uh, thanks for that. I think it raises such an interesting question. Uh, and Mark, I, I admittedly not familiar with this piece of the AFL research, but um, like tendon ruptures in the NBA are infrequent, but as in all sports, so catastrophic when they happen. And there is just like this inherent fear uh, ingrained in NBA athletes about tendon injuries. Um, so if there, if there ever was a way to really define that more accurately ahead of a catastrophic failure, it would be life-changing in the NBA. But on a day-to-day -day basis or preseason testing, mid-season testing, post-season testing, like the NBA is such an interesting animal. Like we already feel like we're pushing our athletes to the end of their to like testing tolerance. Like we have we talk about survey fatigue, like we have testing fatigue in the NBA. These guys just, it, it's really challenging here for us to insert anything else. Uh, but when you can find something that's as high value potentially as this is, it would be easy to add to a preseason metric. I think the point is that we, um, I'm just jumping in there, sorry. Uh, but I think the point is, and I think we're all at that too. I think it's really exciting for me to do the research and working on the process, but I'm really hesitant when people, it's not the next golden shiny thing, because then if we jump on it too early and it's not developed, it's going to show not to work. And then we lost the opportunity to make, maybe do something good with it. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I just think being, you don't want to be the next new shiny machine. I mean, and, and Matt, you work in a, in a more litigious sport than I do, but the concept of let's measure everyone's tendons because if they're not right, they might rupture. It just seems fraught with so many issues. And my reading on the research is that, I, you know, I've only seen a handful of Achilles ruptures in my asymptomatic, asymptomatic tendons rupture. Um, it's it's structural. It's not like a bridge starts to um, disrepair and then snap. Uh, is is definitely my reading of the, of the tendons. So um, that that pathology and pain balance, and I think what we're getting to here is we have such a high bar for entering new decision making tools at a sports club, Karen. That we we need like the decision fatigue. It, it needs to be it needs to be pretty valid and reliable and predictive for us to put it in front of our players because we're making so many decisions with so much data. We don't want more noise. We just want signals. Yeah, and I think that the interesting part too is like when you when you do something new, so I'm doing the new part elastography, some of your older data actually turns out to be much better. So actually just measuring from Achilles tendon, the degree of thickening, measure the healthy part of the tendon and the thickest part of the tendon, that difference 
has been shown for us to be more of value to understand where you are in the change in the process and how um, your performance is. So it's always interesting that you're, it's like the pain pressure and the hopping seems to be really, really good. And just the degree of thickening, I think for people now, if you can measure those things, you're good and let us continue working on trying to find these places to kind of move forward with it. Can I add something about ruptures too? Oh, yeah, of course. So because I do half of my research in Achilles tendon rupture too. And I think the interesting thing for people to understand is that people that have painful tendinopathies and have ruptures is not the same patient population. The majority of people that rupture have never, ever had symptom before. And the people that have symptom, they don't rupture. So I think the pain is probably a, um, prevents you from rupturing. It's limiting your ability to rupture. And I think one of the things then the message that I would get out into elite sports and things too, is that. That's why when we work with Achilles tendinopathy, we work with the pain, we work with the symptoms and improving. You don't want to get all these um, injections to stop the pain because I think then you're much more likely, you don't have the inhibition and you're much more likely to get to a spot when you actually do rupture. Yeah. Uh, uh, I think the first one would be bridging off of March point. It goes into Karen's uh, just like clarifying more on the rupturing stuff like the, the pain pathology and like all of those together create such an interesting issue inside of professional sports. So I guess that it all brings to a question of Karen, where do you see the best or what do you think if you had a test battery for tendons, uh, like a preseason test battery for tendon health, both Achilles and patellar, this is a little selfish, right? But what are your thoughts on what would you look at? Like, what would your metrics be in an asymptomatic individual preseason of things you would look at? So um, I think if I would pick, um, well, how many tests can I pick? I probably can't pick a hundred because we said we had testing fatigue, but I think there, 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 there are a few, there's a few, one questionnaire looking at whatever questionnaire you want, like looking at, can you walk? Do you have pain X, Y, and C doing it? For Achilles tendon, I would do the hopping pain and I would do the pen and pen patient and I would do ultrasound imaging purely looking at is the tendon symmetrical or is there a thinner and a thicker? And I would measure that for the patella tendinopathy. And I have a PhD student who's about to um, defend too. It's um, I would look at the pain provoking, probably the squat test. You guys know better than that. I would have the questionnaire and really what we're realizing might be more of interest is not the thickness of that, but actually do the cross-sectional area. Because what we realize is if you do a plain, purely um, uh, straight up and down thickness, you might miss it because the thickness is spread out more in the patella tendinopathy. So what we see is more predictive of injury and probably having uh, problems with functional measures is doing the cross-sectional area. I think the problem that you might have, and you could answer that, is that some of the functional tests that I use is probably not good functional tests for you because I look at a count of movement, jump straight up and down. That tells something about the population that's not very good. Um, and I'm sure you have other functional tests, but something that will tell you if the performance has been altered. And I mean, I've had a I've had a lot of selfish uh, opportunity to ask questions that I wanted to in this uh, in this conversation. If you guys got any questions, uh, kind of ask one to Karen. But have you guys got any questions that you're itching to ask each other based on what we've been talking about? I'm coming back to one that I have, and I want to ask you guys again. I don't think we got. I asked too many things at once, but how how do we move the whole sports community? 
forward, and I'm thinking about the younger, especially patella tendinopathy, maybe Achilles tendinopathy, how do we move it so that you have less of the people coming in with the injury and moving it so that we can prevent it early on? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think better structured programs early on um, and a better education on the awareness of symptoms. So, so like in our environment, I spend half my time telling players to forget about grumbles. I don't want to hear about your grumbly low back or your achy wrist. But there are a couple of things that I try and get their radar up on. Um, groin pain, foot pain, and tendon pain. So I don't want them to tell me uh, the top of my midfoot has been sore for three weeks because right then I think they've probably cracked their navicular. Um, but what I also don't want them to do is say I've had sore Achilles pain for four weeks. So so I think educate. If I if I could stand in, in front of a, a bunch of young athletes or college kids or school kids, I, you know, but I, I just think there's certain parts of the body you need to respect, um, and there's other parts less so. So I think I think education. Um, and program design are two places that I would start if you were talking broad community-level prevention. And Matt? I I would echo that exactly. I think uh, he hit the education piece really well, but just good, solid, back-to-basics programming. And uh, I say global strengthening, and I hope everybody here understands that I don't just mean like pure strength, right? There's there's a lot of layers to that. Uh, physical development is probably a better term, but good physical development over a structured program is huge uh, after all the education pieces because if we don't hear from our athletes, then it's not going to matter. With programming mind, uh, Mark and Matt, do you, you know, Matt with the G League, I guess, and, and Mark with, uh, I would assume, academy players, do you have dialogue with your uh, strength and conditioning coaches that work with those parts of your organizations? around building in some resiliency for tendons so unfortunately for us we don't have a a g league program Uh, we're one of two teams in the league that doesn't have one Uh, but that said we still have two two two-way contracts which would be like your kind of developmental g league contracts of guys that do spend some time down there and then also we classify our guys from like clear rotational players, whether that's starters or off the bench players, and then guys who are typically not in the rotation. Now, of course, that's not a perfect science. Coaching decisions change it. But we do treat the non-rotational players, the two-way contracts. Our strength coaches have a different development program for those individuals from conditioning, strengthening, power development, tendon resiliency, right? All of that is treated very differently in an athlete who – they're not going to play three and a half games a week. They're going to play zero in all likelihood. You have a whole lot better opportunity. And it's one of the things I miss from soccer. And Mark has this opportunity in the NFL is you can design an entire week because you know what's coming. Um, where for your rotational guys or your starters at three to four games a week, sometimes it's just really challenging to do. But that's how we treat our, our kind of back end of the rotation guys. Yeah, from my end, absolutely. We work with the uh, the, the fitness strength uh, team and the coaches. I think um, one of the naive things that a, a clinician can do in their clinic is suggest to a player, "I'll just modify your training or, or pull this back," and and think that that's so easy to do. But speaking to the coach and speaking to their uh, the people they work with and expecting them just to modify things, it's it's actually very difficult. It has to be a joint conversation, so that needs to be approached. Um, carefully 
We are actually, one of my, my PhDs, we're just working on a feasibility trial to see if we can replicate my um, study in Achilles tendinopathy with continued activity using the pain monitoring model, if we can replicate that in patella tendinopathy. And um, the biggest issue and the reason we started with a feasibility trial is, can you do pain monitoring uh, modification in a team sport athlete, right? Because the optimal thing would be not to take them out, have them somewhat active, but is it feasible to do when somebody, and I think elite, uh, elite sports is one thing, but I'm thinking about high school and college and, um, and we're, he's working on it now, but looking at the data, but we do have some issues with getting people to wanting to be randomized to not being active. They can be active, but it's also the whole, how to, how do you design in team sports continue? Because as Mark said, we want them to continue running and be active because not doing it is the worst thing we can do. But at the same time, working with coaches, um, working with strength and conditioning coaches of what is that level and not also as clinicians, I think just adding, piling things on because all of us wants to do something, but we want to do, it should be the right thing to do and the right modification. But instead of us as clinicians doing in the, in the clinic for two hours, it would be better if you can get them on the court to do certain things too. But I think those are communications. That's what's the hardest thing. And have you guys got any other questions for each other that you want to um, bring up? Anything that burns? Yeah, I have one for Mark because I think it would be interesting hearing from field-based sports to court-based sports. Uh, Mark, what are your thoughts on uh, cut points for athlete participation, athlete limited participation, and then full participation? Right, Karen kind of touched on it there. Is they're trying to develop some of this, but this is such a struggle inside of the NBA um, of what, what limited participation looks like when you're three or four games a week. So I'd be interested to hear what yours is at one game a week, if you can divulge any of that. Yeah, it, it's a great question because the research is nice, but we've got to make decisions on a weekly basis. Um, can they play? Can they train? Um, I've got a couple of thoughts on that that I've just developed over the years. One is, and it's just to those listening at home about your assessment of a tendon and hopping, don't assess a cold tendon. So the player that comes into training and hops in front of you and says, I'm no good today, I don't want to know about that. Go and get warm. So we, we want our tendons warm before we assess them. First step pain is useful, but, but it doesn't scare me that if they've had first step pain. So, so go and get the tendon warm. And then at that point, we have a conversation. Um, rarely use palpation as an assessment tool once we've got the diagnosis. Um, what we then do is we warm them up to the side and we, we have a simple, uh, we, we don't mind a bit of pain in terms of, you know, three, four out of ten. My golden rule is it cannot increase. So I reckon half our tendons get to the side, get moving, get warm, and after several minutes of running and, and basic off-to-the-side drills, um, they go, my tendon's warmed up and it feels good. At that point, crack on, full training. Um, if your tendon gets worse and fails a warm-up, we don't train them. And we do that because we believe in doing so uh, through hard-fought lessons and mistakes, we make it worse. So there's a cutoff for training and that's failure to warm up, but we very rarely pull the pin on people before they've attempted to run and do drills um, because I can half of them do warm up. And morning after pain needs respecting, but um, isn't, isn't as concerning as the ability for a tendon to warm up. 
So that's the main guide on whether someone can train and then obviously play. That's probably our main trigger. It's a good, it's a good answer. I want to know yours. Yeah, I, I knew it was coming. Uh, <laughs> so for us, uh, we'd echo a lot of that, right? Like getting guys warm because so many times, I mean, we everybody knows it and tons of listeners know it. The guy that comes in cold to start the day is like, my back hurts, my hip hurts, my knee hurts. It's like, you've been awake for 10 minutes. Like, I, I don't have a great deal of sympathy for you yet. Let's see what happens once you get moving a little bit. Uh, but particularly in these instances with tendons. So I'm in on a strong, uh, demanding warm-up. For us, it gets interesting because we don't we don't train a great deal in season. So we're making these decisions, uh, you know, maybe on the morning of a game when we're having shoot around that day on what is their availability going to be look like that night. And that's when our cut point changes. Um, so we, we are very conservative with what we do in the mornings with these athletes. Like if they warm up and they're still feeling stiff and sore, uh, but they can look at us and say, Hey, I can, I think I can go. And you can have some of those discussions with athletes on can you go? What are our objective markers for you actually going tonight? Because uh, those change from training markers. That's important. But we have a really low cut point for being like, well, this morning you're going to do the walkthrough section and the teaching portions, but we're not we're not going to warm you up, put a stressor on this tendon, cool you down, and then ask you to warm up again at seven o'clock that night. That just for us it seems unnecessary. Uh, but then our cut points for games are obviously different because you may get a little more sore as the game goes on, but it's a game. Uh, so keeping game day holy or game day sacred and maximizing availability, you know, maybe it, it hurts down the road being a little aggressive for game days, but it's a, that's, that's a challenge. I'm not even sure I have a good answer to game day availability. Yeah. And the challenge that I would see in the NBA world is tendons hate to warm up and cool down. So mm-hmm. going uh, too hard in the going hard in the morning and then cooling down and having to go hard that night. Our approach to that on the few times that's come up is to just make the call in an extended warm up because having to warm them up and make a call and say, great, your tendon's good. And then they cool down, get stiff, sore. And then that night they go to warm up and go, actually, it's a different story now. So uh, trying to almost avoid dipping your toe in the water and having an extended test. Now that the, the the coach has to be happy with the decision being potentially made late and yeah. that causes other problems. But that, that might be delving too specific into our world. No. Um, but tendons, I, I, Karen's mentioned it, every couple of days is the preferred loading um, for a tendon. And I think another really simple take home there is if you can avoid loading a tendon twice a day or daily for a period of time, that's helpful. Yeah, and those are like, I think you hit it with like the really uh, pissed off tendons. It, it, like in the morning, it's not even a question. This is more for our guys that like, ah, we're not sure. And again, it's the, like, so much of this is leaned on from coaching and management. And I would say not just in basketball, but in soccer and all aspects. Like Those groups want black and white answers as early as possible. And sometimes it's just not practical. Like sometimes it's like, Hey, we're not doing anything this morning or we're not doing anything on a Friday before for a game we are optimistic for tomorrow but we're really not going to know until we can handle stuff later and then like you mentioned keeping attendant warm too because some of the warm-ups both in i'm sure in afl but in soccer and in the nba some of this stuff takes place two hours before the game starts and now it's like well we feel pretty good about you going so we can tell coach sooner 
But what do we do to manage this from now until the start of the game is a, is a whole nother question. And I think that's the other part to that question too. I work with soccer in Sweden and really cold outside in the winter and hard surfaces you can just imagine. But I think there's an interesting question sometimes too, that then the coaches say, okay, well, we'll keep them on the bench to start out with. And then they come in later and you would rather do the complete opposite, right? It's like, no, 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 no. We want them to play early and then you can pull them out. And especially if it comes to soccer and things too, that you pull them out and not go back and in. But I think those communications are really important to understand as well, because the worst thing is you warm up and then you sit for 30 minutes and then boom, in one minute, now you're up. Spot on, Karen. And those little things, as subtle as they are, that is the difference between managing an in-season tendon and having one blow up on you and miss games. It's those little things, controlling warmth and warm up. What, what are your thoughts on that, Matt? Yeah, I, well, I was going to say that, and even like off season stuff. This is this is a completely different conversation if you've got an athlete for three or four weeks in the off season that, like, they're working on their and this you know this happens in all sports, right? They're working on their off season programming at home. They start to feel a little twinge here or there. They come to see you. Well, now you can manage it. You can build out those great programs you were talking about. You can get a really good subjective. But in season where there's a limited number of games and it's even more so in AFL and soccer where one game could be three or 4% of your you know, season total, it, we need to prioritize that. And it, it gets really interesting. So it, it turns into a management of the tendon as opposed to like, let's treat the tendon and look for maximal improvement. They're two very different windows and then you repetitively going to fail too right the, your treatment's going to fail if they think you're going to treat it and it's like no we're managing this and sometimes i've even had people like we're going to manage this through your season but then after the season you are going to have a surgery which actually is no surgery at all but we're going to say today you're having surgery and now i'm going to rehab you like you had surgery right and then you start with the, the progression instead of trying to do this do a little bit and too much because that yo-yoing back and forth is the biggest issue. I, this hits so hard on like the, the pain science nerd in me that you hit like setting expectations, addressing fear. These are huge components to managing an in-season tendon. And this is where I, I mentioned it earlier. People get so damn stuck on the tendon that it's just tendon treatment. It's this, it's this, it's this. No, there's an entire person attached to it. And there's other things that can affect stressors on that tendon. Let's not forget that. So setting an expectation early of like, hey, some soreness is normal. You're going to have good days and bad days. It's going to depend on what happened in the previous 48, 72 hours. Some days are going to be worse than others. We're going to deal with this and then get to the off season and really treat it. That's a home run because uh, then you don't get into Marco, I hope, would agree with this. You save some of the arguments and some of the back and forth with athletes when their expectation at the beginning is you know, more realistic as opposed to like, oh, I'll fix everything. It just doesn't work. And just following that, the communication to athletes is an in-season tendon will be managed till the end of the year. We're not going to fix this thing. Um, so set the expectation that, look, you're going to expect expect some pain, expect some slight reduce, reduction in performance, um, and we will manage this thing and we will sort it out in the off-season. I think if the expectation is jab it, fix it, what can you do? Um, you're going to have a difficult conversation with your player athlete. And I say to my to my runners, the people come runners and um, especially the older runners and stuff, I mean, this is going to take you a year. Either you do what I tell you for a year and you're going to be able to run in a year or you don't do it and we'll see you in a year and we'll be back to where we started, right? And also 
saying that th this is how long it takes. And then if they get better earlier, they're just happy, right? And the other thing I always say is, you're going to feel better, and then you're going to feel worse. It's not a setback. It is what it is. And it helps when you kind of address all these things, because we know it's going to happen. But if they know it's going to happen too, they come back and they say, yeah, I had some flare up, but you told me that was going to happen. So I was fine with it. It's like to Karen's point about the ACL versus the tendon. I've had players have two, three years of tendon pain and they said, I never knew it would take this long in the moment. People don't mind doing a hamstring and knowing it's going to be three weeks or breaking their leg and knowing it's going to be 12 weeks, uh, six months, whatever it's going to be. But the, the lack of a defined timeline um, is one of the most difficult things with tendons and you think you're on top of it and then you're not and it can turn on you. So trying to give some loosening the expectations uh, is huge, huge step in reassuring um, fear um, around tendon and performance. Have you guys got any uh, final questions to address to each other? Yeah, I, I'm probably interested to know. Um, this is a podcast about Achilles tendon pain. So so uh, to Matt and Karen, if you, if you could give two kind of loading exercises to an athlete uh, in the middle of a week, in the middle of a season, and I know the answer is whatever they feel helps. But what do you find has helped the most um, in your experience? Is your question asking um, what I think helps in the long term or help in the short term? What helps make a tendon feel better in the middle of the season in terms of loading? So, like, and I'm going to I'm going to clarify. I'm going to clarify it again, right? Are we talking? And we'll use your schedule because your schedule's. Uh, better for a question like wednesday tendon pain optimizing availability for saturday what exercise do you feel is or like what grouping of exercises would you use on that day yeah that's what i'm interested to know that's a good question i i would do for achilles tendinopathy i would always do i would do bilateral heel rise as a warm-up i would then do single leg heel rise um depending also on how much weight they can add on, but slow and controlled. So more like heavy, slow, slow up, slow down, single leg heel rise. Those two would be my number one. So they have the control and possibly add a few eccentrics. If I think that they, I want to fatigue them a little bit more or not. I would, I would echo that and then talk about distributing it from like a, a pre-practice or pre-team session and then what we what can we do post-session too right is there a potential to use some of these exercises like she mentioned like the the bilateral heel raise and the single leg heel raise in the midst of a of a good warm-up progression right so like you're going through a dynamic warm-up and then you're adding these two and then post because i still need you to be available for practice because coach wants you to be available for practice post-practice with whatever i have left in a fatigued state focusing on more eccentric work or some fatigue strengthening stuff for like a, like looking more gastrox soleus as opposed to just a tendon. Yeah, that's interesting. And then living for like the next two days that there is the potential for soreness Friday may be off, but you might be ready for Saturday if we're again, talking about a Wednesday, but it gives me a stimulus midweek that I can use. Yeah, I think you hit on something that I've found myself is that you want to give some loading exercises to the tendon to warm it up and help them train. But then afterwards, you want to get back in the gym and look at maybe more, personally more the strength component. So I we wouldn't use eccentric strength prior to training, um, but while the tendon is still warm, not three hours later when the gym program. So we anyone with tendon pain on our list gets to lift straight after training. 
we've had a few people try and pretend to have tendon pain because they want to get out of the center sooner but um <laughs> they they will uh their their strength program will occur straight after training um because we don't want them to cool down and then come back three hours later and and hit the tendon again um but but that idea of preparatory work and um, maintenance work is something it sounds like we're both thinking of any closing thoughts from anybody i had one closing thought um when we were talking about assessment is just make sure you're dealing with an achilles tendon so over the last four or five years we've had um some funky plantaris issues we've had a, a bogged down sural nerve we've had all kinds of fat pad issues um, a lot of people can be confused by posterior joint pain. Um, I don't think tendons are hard to assess. I think they're hard to manage. But having said that, you can sometimes jump too quickly to this is an Achilles tendon problem, not to mention the paratendon, um, which I suppose is the same thing but can have a different approach. And some of that is borne out in where they feel it, the pattern of behaviour. Like a tendon that doesn't warm up, uh, I don't know if it's a tendon. I'm starting to think it's something else. So just just to um, th those out there, to be clear on your diagnosis before you start loading up their Achilles. At the, I want to do that and say that it's such a good point because there's so many times people come with me and, you know, I've done it for a long time. You can look at them like, well, that's not your Achilles tendon. You know, there's something different. Uh, you don't need to have ultrasound. I mean, I have ultrasound imaging, which really helps to kind of explain, but really do a thorough evaluation and not just assume because somebody says it's in, in, in one area. I mean, it could be flexor halis as long as problems for, especially for dancers and other people, posterior impingement. Um, I mean, there's so many other things, but a good evaluation is really what you need to have. I, I think for those listening that aren't going to get the video piece of that, when Mark said that, everybody else's head started going wild on the recording. Um, Cause that's, that's such a home run. I think if you, if you skip a really accurate diagnosis, this is your athlete that has it forever, or they've seen 15 different people. And like there, there's a lot of instances of this that clinicians could echo forever, but making sure you have an accurate diagnosis in this area is really is a home run. Yeah. And I mean, I've even had athletes that have, um, runners and it turned out to be a um, silent herniated discs. And I mean, there are, and it should have been detected early on if you just did the full evaluation and just didn't complete immediately assume it's an Achilles tendon. Well, I have to thank you all very much for, uh, for coming on the show. I think the listeners will be the same as me and they'll, they'll probably sponge uh, a hell of a lot of detail out of this conversation. And I know I, for one, will definitely be playing it back uh, a few times to, to get all the valuable points that you've made into my uh, into my thought processes and, and approach, so I thank you all very much for for being flexible and being able to come on the show in, in different hemispheres and time zones. And it's been fantastic to to hear you all bounce off each other on this topic. Thank you very much, and it's been really exciting to listen. I really appreciate Mark and Matt's your input too, and thank you, Andrew, for inviting me. Thanks for your time, Andy. Yeah, I appreciate it, Andy. This was this was awesome. Uh... I think I might be a little outclassed here on some of these questions, but it was fun. I'd like to extend my gratitude and appreciation again to Karen, Mark and Matt for coming on and sharing so much detail and expertise on how they navigate managing Achilles tendon pain in elite sport. Getting excellent clinicians together for discussion in this way is so valuable and productive in pushing the conversation forward and in turn our approaches clinically.
I'm very confident that a lot of you listening will have taken enormous benefit from the panel's ideas, perspectives and knowledge, and it's interesting listening when it's experientially driven. We would really appreciate some feedback on this episode, as we're thinking of hosting more of these panel episodes, doing a deep dive into specific topics within sports medicine and performance. The best place to contact us to do so would be on our social media accounts. They will be Inform Performance on Instagram or at InformPod for Twitter. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. And thanks again for listening to the Inform Performance podcast.